Yes. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rock and roll About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Let me tell you about Eddie Van Halen, the late great guitar virtuoso whose pioneering sound defined 80s era hard rock and metal, and whose lightning fast licks inspired legions of teenagers to learn how to shred. But this is not about Eddie. This is about Valerie Bertinelli. The girl who grew up on television under the immense pressure of the public eye married a rock star at age 20 and took a decades-long journey to self-acceptance. This story is about a girl. Valerie Bertinelli stood in the back hallway of the Hirsch Memorial Coliseum with some bags of M&Ms in her hands. Twenty years old, though she could pass for younger, she worried that she looked stupid, that she wasn't cool enough. All she did was play a dumb teenager on a TV sitcom, and now she looked like a dumb teenager for real, just standing there. She nervously bounced on the toes of her thigh-high boots. Alex, the drummer, came up to her first and put her at ease. He joked with her, like he liked her or something, and that made her smile. Then the bass player, Michael, did the same thing, effortlessly flirting. But Valerie didn't want to talk to the drummer or the bass player. She wanted to meet the cute guitar player the most. Van Halen was a recent discovery. Valerie first heard them when her brother David left an eight-track of the album Women and Children first in her car. David and her other brother, Patrick, called into this radio station in Shreveport, Louisiana, and used their famous sister's name to get backstage passes to the show. The catch was that Valerie had to hand out M&Ms to the band, a kind of publicity stunt for the station. The candy was in Van Halen's backstage rider, except the brown M&Ms, which the band famously insisted had to be removed. And as she stood there backstage, bags of candy at the ready, 
the star power of the band began to hit her. And as she stood there backstage, bags of candy at the ready, the star power of the band began to hit her. She could hear Eddie Van Halen down the hall testing his guitar sound in the cavern of the Coliseum, and then the unmistakable sound of David Lee Roth yowling into the mic. The backstage manager told the Bertinelli kids they could meet the two stars after the show. But Eddie noticed the cute girl at the side of the stage. He poked his head around the corner and gave Valerie a wave. Then he disappeared. Valerie blushed. Girls shrieked for the band as the lights came up. From the side of the stage, Valerie watched as Van Halen ripped into the first riff of Romeo Delight, her favorite song off the new album. Dave jumped around the stage in the world's tightest spandex pants, like a sexy acrobat from another planet. Eddie ignored the crowd and Dave's antics. He mostly looked down at his guitar, a smile flashing from under his shaggy hair. But he kept glancing over at Valerie. When the show was over, Valerie's heart was beating louder than the band's ear-shattering set and the thunderous crowd combined. She could barely talk by the time Eddie approached her backstage. She'd met a number of famous people before, and she was pretty immune to the experience. But this was a real-deal rock star in front of her. He was quiet, a little mumbly, the flip side of his flashy frontman, Diamond Dave. She followed the guys to their hotel and stayed up drinking and smoking by the pool until the bus came to take the band off to Baton Rouge for the next gig. Before they left, she handed Eddie her number. Then she went home with her brothers and began to wait for his call. Valerie Ann Bertinelli was born in 1960 to very young parents. Catholic repression was baked into her family's communication style. That is to say, they did not really communicate. Not about the big things. Like how, before she was born, there had been another baby. He drank out of a Coca-Cola bottle that was used to store cleaning chemicals. Only 17 months old. She didn't learn about her late brother Mark until she was a teenager, and he was never discussed again. Her family relocated from Delaware to Detroit and then to L.A., where Valerie took acting lessons at the Tammy Lynn School of Artists. One of her first lessons at her first playing gig had nothing to do with acting. At auditions for a JCPenney commercial, the girls got tiny Easter dresses to try on. Valerie fit into hers and subsequently got the part. Size equaled success. She remembered the words of a male teacher who patted her on the belly and told her to watch out for that at 10 years old. Before she was even a teenager, self-esteem and a healthy body image already had no chance. It didn't help that the rejections at other auditions were delivered by adult men who looked her up and down before deciding that she wasn't good enough. But she kept going. All those judgmental male rejections be damned. Her persistence helped her book commercials for corn chips, tuna, and lemonade. Eventually, she was shown a script for a TV pilot. Norman Lear, the writer and producer behind All in the Family, The Jeffersons, and Sanford and Son, was preparing a new show about a divorced single mom and her two daughters. As Valerie read over the script for One Day at a Time, the role of the younger daughter, Barbara Cooper, felt like a perfect fit. It was. Norman Lear loved her, said she reminded him of one of his own daughters. At 15 years old, Valerie's after-school hobby was now a full-time job. 
her mom drove her to set for rehearsals and live tapings, five days a week. On set, her new TV mom, Bonnie Franklin, looked out for her. She felt close to Bonnie in a way that she didn't feel with her real mom. It was Bonnie she went to when she needed advice on boys when she began to date. Her TV sister, on the other hand, intimidated the hell out of her. Mackenzie Phillips, the daughter of John Phillips from The Mamas and the Papas, was only a year older but seemed way cooler. Mag had starred in George Lucas's American Graffiti when she was 12. She smoked pot and dropped acid. She was a natural actor and seemed so adult. She even had HBO in her bedroom. No one had HBO. But everyone had CBS. And so when One Day at a Time premiered in December of 1975, it immediately shot into the top 10. Suddenly, Valerie's picture was in teen magazines, but her parents shielded her from the attention. For a while, she didn't even know she was a pinup crush for boys and a hairstyle icon for girls. Now that more eyes were on her, Valerie's biggest demon started to grow and gain power. When you don't like yourself, you don't want to see yourself. You don't want to know that thousands of others are seeing you too. Even though her TV persona was a tomboy who wore baggy clothes, Valerie thought she looked babyish and round next to the tall, thin Matt. Valerie told a reporter that she clearly had a really bad problem with her weight. Convinced of a problem that didn't exist, Valerie tried the silly fad diet with grapefruit and black coffee, but her body stayed the same no matter what she did most likely because she was a teenager who was already a healthy weight. Didn't matter. She decided she needed outside help, no matter what it took. She smoked pot with her older brother, Drew, and begged him for another drug, diet pills. The pills made her feel emotionally unbalanced and caused her face to break out, but she lost the 10 pounds she thought she needed to lose. She had a few dates here and there with some older boys, including SNL keyboardist and future David Letterman bandleader Paul Schaefer, who quote-unquote dated her when he was 27 and she was only 16. The tabloids printed rumors linking her to every hot young actor she co-starred with. Her mother was furious when she found Valerie's diary in which she confessed to all the things she'd been doing. Puffing the occasional joint, drinking wine, having so-called magical nights with her boyfriend, actor Scott Columbia. But suddenly none of it seemed so bad when her mother picked up the newspaper and read that Mackenzie Phillips had been arrested for drug possession after she was found by the police face down on a sidewalk. Mac told Valerie she had made the dumb mistake of taking a pill from some guy she had met. She figured it was a quaalude. But Valerie knew that drugs weren't just a once in a while thing like Mac made them out to be. It was serious enough that in 1978, she was sent to a drug diversion program, but the program seemed to just teach her new ways to do drugs. Matt came back with a brand new habit, freebasing cocaine. Mac's health deteriorated. Valerie watched as her co-star showed up to set exhausted and delirious, even collapsing on stage. In December of 1979, the show told Mac to take a rest and go to rehab, but it didn't help. In March of the following year, Mac was fired. The things that had made her seem so cool to Valerie had really been evidence of emptiness and neglect. It would be decades before she would recover. Valerie felt horrible but promised herself that she'd never make the same mistakes. 
And by not making those same mistakes, she opened herself up to more opportunities. Like when Steven Spielberg asked her to read for his new big-budget adventure movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Valerie met with Steven, and he seemed so nice. But when he followed up by sending her roses, she understood what the audition had really been about. The famous director, now in his mid-thirties, just wanted to date her. He was no different from Paul Schaefer and all the rest. More discouragement struck in August of 1980, when the actors' union strike brought TV production to a screeching halt. To get by, Valerie worked construction at her brother's company for a few months. That's when the Van Halen tape ended up in the back of her Corvette. She popped it in one day while driving home. Soon, she would meet her own Romeo Delight. September 1980. Valerie Bertinelli was up late playing cards with her brothers when the phone rang. Finally. Eddie Van Halen was calling from Texas. It had been three whole days since she'd given Eddie her number. He asked her to join the band at their next stop. She made a beeline to their show in Oklahoma and once again got to watch the show from the side of the stage. She didn't have to hand out M&Ms this time. Eddie admitted later he was actually nervous playing in front of Valerie. This wasn't just a hookup. He made that clear by getting her a separate hotel room. Before going to their individual beds, they bonded over their childhoods. Eddie told her about being born in the Netherlands to two musicians, about moving to the U.S. when he was seven. Valerie liked that he laughed a lot when he talked and clearly loved his family. He seemed really genuine about wanting to get to know her, too. Valerie returned home after the Oklahoma show, but was flown out to meet Eddie in other cities and eventually started traveling on the bus with the band, still sleeping in her own bunk. The only way to be with a rock star, she was finding, is to literally meet them wherever they're at. Eddie was in his own world when he played. Valerie found it seductive to watch him, even if he felt far away. At least on tour, she could join him when the show was over for the few hours of rest he'd have before the sound check. In one of their late-night talks, Eddie confessed that he'd recently left a long-term relationship with a girl who cheated on him with a good friend. That was why he wanted to take things slow. In Phoenix, Valerie found him crying in his room. He'd had a screaming fight with Dave because Eddie had just won yet another Best Guitarist Award, his fourth so far, landing him on another magazine cover without the rest of the band. To Dave's eyes, Eddie was being what he called a hot shit show-off. The front man was supposed to be the star. Valerie comforted him. That night, she didn't need her own room. She arrived back to the one-day-at-a-time set for its sixth season, wearing a Van Halen pendant. Valerie bought a new house in Coldwater Canyon, and after his tour ended, Eddie moved in. She began to establish herself in the role of protector. Since that night in Phoenix, when she first saw Eddie cry, she repeated the pattern of drawing his internalized feelings out of him and making it better. She wanted him to know that she could be a safe space. Valerie visited Eddie's childhood home in Pasadena, California, and met Mr. and Mrs. Van Halen, a.k.a. Ma and Pa. There, she learned Eddie had been drinking and smoking since the ripe old age of 12, courtesy of his dad. Pa was a gifted musician himself, 
and instilled into his sons an obsessive pursuit of perfection. But that attitude had caused tension with his wife, who wished he had given up music when the kids were born, and the tension had led to the drinking. On meeting Valerie, Pa said she was too young for his 25-year-old son. He thought she was 15 like her character on TV, but she was 20 now, almost 21. Valerie brought up the idea of marriage first. They looked at some rings at jewelry stores and Eddie surreptitiously bought the one she liked. Later at home, he got down on one knee. It was December 8, 1980. Shortly after their engagement, a friend called to say John Lennon had been shot. Valerie's thoughts turned from wedding gowns to the crazy fans that follow Eddie around, the ones that honked their horns and screamed outside their house. She couldn't help but worry. Four months after they first met, Valerie and Eddie were planning a wedding. Things between Eddie and David Lee Roth were more strained now that Eddie was engaged. Dave declined to be a groomsman, and Van Halen would not perform at the wedding. In addition to her own work, Valerie tried to keep up with Eddie's career and the rock and roll lifestyle for which Van Halen was becoming notorious. It was a tall order, considering Eddie's near-constant drinking and cocaine use. Hits of coke powered the couple as they sat down and filled out the questionnaire for the priest that would soon marry them. On the morning of April 11, 1981, Valerie held back Eddie's hair while he threw up due to some combination of nerves and substances. They said their vows later that day. By the end of the night, Valerie passed out in her gown on top of a hotel bed, while Eddie passed out in the bathroom. Two weeks later, she turned 21. Van Halen left for a six-month tour to promote their fourth album, Fair Warning, and Valerie was back to work shooting the new season of One Day at a Time. She spent her weekends meeting up with the band on tour, which meant back to non-stop drinking, and then arriving back on set exhausted on Monday. She was inadvertently walking in Mackenzie Phillips' footsteps. Tabloids speculated on their marriage. In their narrative, Valerie and Eddie were incompatible. Despite her being a married adult, the magazine still cast her as the innocent and wholesome good girl, and Eddie the bad boy corrupter. It just couldn't work, they said. The groupies and drugs would tear them apart. Valerie didn't worry about the groupies. She felt their connection was strong, and she was determined to prove the stupid tabloid writers wrong and make this marriage work no matter what. But Eddie Van Halen would do his best to make that a challenge. First, she wanted to work on her own image as an actress. She booked the leading role in the TV movie, I Was a Mail Order Bride. This role could be her chance to finally be seen by Hollywood as a serious actress. It could be a gateway to real films, not just low-budget made-for-TV. But she worried that her round, girlish face would keep her in insignificant, cutesy little roles forever. And when she read the scene in the script where she had to wear a revealing red bathing suit, a familiar demon arose inside her. This time, there would be no diet pills. She found something that worked better. A little hit of coke every time she got hungry. By the time she shot the bathing suit scene, she'd gotten down to 106 pounds. Then she discovered her drug of choice was not cocaine, but rather weight loss itself. That's where the high came from. The more she thinned out, 
the more magazines talked about how sexy and mature she was becoming. One photo of her in a bathing suit said she had lost her, quote, puppy fat. Eventually, the 5'5 actress was down to 98 pounds, and the media continued to reward her for abusing her body. Thin was good, the world told her. Thin was right. Thin was how you become a real actress. Who gives a shit how you actually feel inside? Eddie was surprisingly the voice of reason. He finally told her enough was enough. She was too skinny. He said he could feel all the bones in her back and that it wasn't beautiful no matter what the paper said. His attempt at intervention was taking her to get a chili dog. And then it was back to the whiplash speed riot that was Van Halen's ascendant career. On Memorial Day in 1983, Valerie found herself in a helicopter flying over a crowd of 400,000. The band was playing the Us Festival, put on by Apple's Steve Wozniak. Woz was paying Van Halen a whopping $1 million. It was all happening. How could she not be happy? But it was a bittersweet moment. Because later that year, One Day at a Time began filming its final season. Valerie cried when she left the set for the last time, like she was graduating from college. It made sense, since she was only 23. But her life had already taken her places most 23-year-olds could only imagine. Working together, Valerie and Eddie demolished the guest house in their backyard with a Caterpillar tractor. Eddie built his 5150 recording studio in its place. He began recording what would become Van Halen's biggest record, named for the year that would be their most intense yet, 1984. He was invited to play guitar on Michael Jackson's track, Beat It, and he laid down an iconic, blistering solo. Diamond Dave, of course, resented Eddie for yet another moment in the spotlight. When 1984 was released and the tour started, the fighting between the two of them intensified. Dave became paranoid and created more and more creative rules about who was allowed to watch from the side of the stage. Eventually, even Valerie was banned. Valerie Bertinelli decided she was done with cocaine and the sketchy people that came with it. She watched as her husband, who was definitely not done with it, developed stomach problems from stress and chemicals, drinking all night long to self-medicate and fuel his obsessive work habits. Valerie couldn't keep up with the lifestyle anymore, and so she couldn't continue to be Eddie's constant protector. So Eddie found another woman he could talk to, one who understood music too, Patti Smith, singer of the band Scandal not to be confused with the punk rock icon of the same name. Valerie still badly wanted to land a role in a feature film. She lost out on Footloose, The Big Chill, and Adventures in Babysitting. She was told she came off as angry and unhappy, and, well, she was. Eddie's continued drinking and his thing with Patty, whatever it was, made Valerie feel like a failure. Still, unlike David Lee Roth, who had quit Van Halen after the last tour to pursue a solo career, Valerie dug in her heels to keep her marriage together. It wasn't easy. In August of 1985, Valerie and her brother Patrick flew to Japan with a band called Private Life. Patrick had a crush on the keyboard player, and Valerie had convinced Eddie to produce their album. The band's drummer, Craig, 
lavished attention on Valerie. She knew what was going to happen with Craig before it did, but she was at a low point, insecure and lonely. When she got home, she chose not to tell Eddie about her affair. She closed herself off. She self-medicated, not with drugs this time, but with food. She ended up back at a healthy weight, even if it was a weight that she and Hollywood at large both felt unacceptable for their own reasons. Her agent soon delivered a message from producers. She needed to shed some pounds. She knew it, and it fed her self-loathing. One bright spot was Van Halen's new lead singer. Sammy Hagar seemed more mature and stable than Dave ever was. The band began writing a new album that enlightened Eddie's mood. But outside the rejuvenated Van Halen, it was still one sour note after another. Valerie suffered a miscarriage. Eddie was sweet and sympathetic, but she convinced herself it was punishment for her affair in Japan. During wardrobe fittings for a new miniseries, the producer mentioned how great it would be if Valerie was just one size smaller. The breaking point came when Valerie stood outside the recording studio, listening as Eddie told someone on the phone that he wanted out of his marriage. She had a feeling that someone was Patti Smith, who, unbeknownst to anyone, had been offered David Lee Roth's job after he left. As she listened, she became angry. Not at Eddie, but at herself. She felt like more of a failure as a wife than ever before. They needed a reset before things went too far. Eddie moved out and into his studio, and sometimes he was staying somewhere else, with someone else. Not knowing where he was was unnerving, but she was used to barely seeing him. During this pseudo-separation, though, she realized she wasn't the only problem. Eddie had been on a slow downward slide for years, quieting his interior turmoil with drugs and booze. Together with Eddie's close family and friends, Valerie staged an intervention. No one had ever confronted him like this. He broke down and he listened to what his loved ones had to say and saw himself through their eyes. That same day, he checked into the Betty Ford Rehab Center. Valerie booked herself into a nearby hotel. When Eddie got out of rehab, it really did feel like a new start. Eddie launched into working on the next Van Halen album, OU812. Valerie made sure to tread lightly. It was not a matter of if he would binge again, but when. She knew the cycle of drinking, then anger, and then shame was simply on pause right now. They went to Fiji for the romantic honeymoon they never had. Their full, loving attention was on each other for two whole weeks. The day they returned, Eddie vomited all over the wall. Valerie could hardly believe it. She remained suspicious and resentful. What the fuck did he take this time? Would it ever stop? It turned out that Eddie had actually contracted dengue fever. The result was a three-day hospital stay during which Valerie felt terrible. She felt less terrible but more nervous when Van Halen's OU812 went to number one and the band hit the road for the Monsters of Rock tour with Metallica. She knew this was a huge danger zone for Eddie. The stress and excitement, the temptation and the old habits. And she still didn't know how to feel about herself. She checked into a weight loss retreat center, worried the roles wouldn't come if she didn't slim down from her current weight an objectively healthy 123 pounds. 
She even signed up for Overeaters Anonymous. Eddie relapsed from his sobriety and the cycle began again. On New Year's Eve, on the beach with Valerie's parents, he drank too much and got into their car. Valerie tried to take the keys away, but he fought her for them. Valerie's father got the final say in the form of a fist to Eddie's face. A second round of rehab followed. Valerie tried to be there for Eddie while filming her new show, Sydney, in which she played the lead alongside future friend star, Matthew Perry. She and Eddie went to couples therapy for the first time and things seemed positive for a while. They worked on building a dream house. Valerie was pregnant again. She sucked on lemons to help curb her nausea while Eddie cut down on booze. They decided on Wolfgang for the baby's name, reflecting Eddie's love of Mozart. But they never called him that in the womb. He was Wolfie, just like in the movie Amadeus. In March 1991, when baby Wolfie was born, they settled into a familial bliss. It was short-lived. Eddie's drinking returned, and with it, his anger. He yelled at Valerie's mom, destroyed a rental car with his foot. And in 1993, everything began to crumble. Once again, Valerie overheard Eddie on the phone. This time he was talking about some woman that he gave money to over the years. He was saying he was tired of being blackmailed, and Valerie gathered that there were incriminating photos. Eventually, she learned that it was by no means his only affair. She took Wolfie and moved in with a friend for a few days to cool off. Her body issues intensified. She was asked to consider a role on Friends, playing Matthew Perry's ex-wife, but she didn't even go to the audition. She simply assumed she was too fat. The demon was in full control. Things weren't going well for her husband either. Eddie and Sammy Hagar had a falling out after the band's tour over creative and business differences. Eddie said Sammy had LSD, a.k.a. lead singer disease. Sammy said he was forced out. Eddie said Sammy quit. And Eddie found another reason to start drinking heavily. Valerie returned home and tried to seduce Eddie for the first time in a long time. He responded by telling her she could work on her ass a little. She stormed off to the kitchen to eat whatever she could find, because fuck him. The next few years for Valerie were happy with Wolfie, but bad as ever with Eddie. She loved just being a mom, doing normal mom things with other women. Book clubs, crossword puzzles, and therapy, which helped her realize she couldn't do anything about what Eddie wanted to do to himself. In 2000, Eddie's tongue was biopsied. Cancer. It was removed, but Eddie was told never to smoke again. Quitting booze was also advised. He wouldn't, or couldn't, listen. Within two months, he was smoking again. Valerie said if cancer didn't kill him, she would. She deliberately initiated an affair with a friend to see how it felt. And honestly, it felt nice. Nice to have someone pay attention to you, to hold your hand. Then she confronted Eddie. She found coke in his wallet when he came to visit her on set with Wolfie. He'd gotten on a plane with their child with drugs in his pocket. As much as Valerie wanted a two-parent household for her son, she realized the two parents constantly fighting wasn't a good environment. Fuck you. Divorce me. 
Eddie said. Valerie's response was easier than she thought it would be. She looked back at her husband, and without thinking too much at all about it, she said, Okay. Valerie Bertinelli spent two more decades battling with that demon, the one that tried to convince her to hate herself. Two more decades of giving in to the illusion that thinness was the path to happiness. As always, Hollywood reinforced that idea. After a successful run on the show Touched by an Angel, the casting opportunity slowed down. She was told without any hesitation that her weight was the reason. She became a spokesperson for Jenny Craig, wrote one book about gaining and losing weight, and then another one, still framing weight loss as a solution to self-esteem problems. She went to more therapy and attended lectures from spiritual leaders and for the first time tried to get in touch with something outside of herself. Above all, she stayed committed to being Wolfie's mom. When he was 15, Eddie asked him to join Van Halen after the departure of Michael Anthony. Seeing her son play on stage alongside Eddie and his band thrilled her and scared her at the same time. She knew her son would see a side of his dad he hadn't before, and she knew too well the dangers of that life. But they raised an incredibly grounded kid, and he seemed to love playing and being with his dad and uncle. The divorce with Eddie was finalized in 2007, but being separated almost brought them closer together. They were able to feel like family more than they had since Wolfie's first year, working together to be good parents, while Valerie was spared the pain of seeing Eddie battle his addictions. Eventually, they even attended each other's second weddings. Through hard work, and without her insecurities to torment her, Valerie stopped seeing food as the enemy and started a second career hosting cooking shows. She wrote a memoir titled Enough Already, Learning to Love the Way I Am Today. In October 2022, the cancer that Valerie had tried to save Eddie from finally caught up with him. He died at age 65, surrounded by his wife, Janie, his son, his brother, and Valerie. His last words were, I love you. But this isn't about him. This is about Valerie Bertinelli, a child actor whose self-image was burned by the spotlight while it was still forming and a loving mother who took her time finding love for herself. This is About a Girl. About a Girl is executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sattler for Double Elvis. Scott Janovitz is the show's producer. It was created by Eleanor Wells and hosted by me, Nikki Lynette. This episode was written by Chelsea Erson. For sources used and more information, go to aboutagirlpod.com. The music is composed by Scott Janovich and Matt Tahini. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spreaker. The show is on Instagram at aboutagirlpod. And you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Nikki Lynette.